0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School.
1: This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Whole crew is in here today. Cade Massey hosting with Audie Weiner, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen. The collaborators for the last eight years were a we're month shy, a month shy of eight years for the last two the last quarter of our existence, we've been coming to you via Zoom, but it means we're able to collect everybody wherever they are. Q1 here, as you guys know, since the pandemic hit two years ago, we've been using Q1 to talk about the pandemic. So there's lots of, lots of football to talk about, lots of sports generally to talk about. We'll hold off and do that in quarters two through four in this quarter. Guys, we're recording on Tuesday afternoon. Good to see you. Glad to get a little time with you. Curious what has caught your eye in the world of COVID-19.
2: Well, I I would just say in my case, I would notice that I'm a little surprised that the number, I mean, it's again, it's just big N times smaller P, I'm still surprised that the number of average number of daily deaths, you know, at least the CDC reports a seven day average is as high as it's been, it's well over 2000 per day um obviously the number of cases is much higher than it was uh before like three to four times higher and it's in the 200,000 range so I don't think the death rate is down but big n is big and so you know I'm just wondering at some point we've got to run out of people that either aren't vaccinated or haven't gotten the virus etc because at some point you know I'm hoping that over the next, whatever, 200 days, we're not sitting here with a half a million more deaths. But at the moment, you know, we always know that the cases and there's been a temporal pattern between cases and deaths. That's really been broken now. Cases have been going down. I understand there's regional variation in that, but cases have been going down, but deaths have not been.
3: But it's not just explainable by the obvious lag. I mean, between deaths and cases.
2: Cases have been going down for i think a longer period of time than deaths have been, in other words, maybe there 's a longer lag now shane it 's entirely possible it 's a different temporal pattern. It could also just be that there's you know uh, there 's such regional heterogeneity that you know wh- that 's what we 're seeing is that you know the degree of spread and where it 's spreading to that there 's a lag between the lags because of how things are spreading across the country. That's another possibility. It could also be that the vaccine's playing a role in the degree of lags as well. Yeah,
3: I mean, I, just because I think in the run-up to, like, I mean, you know, if I, if I think back to what I was kind of looking at and thinking about a month ago, that was back when Omicron, the cases were spiking off the charts and we weren't seeing any increase in the death rate. And it seemed to me even then that there was a longer lag. Like, I feel like, and Adi, you could probably actually bring more data there, but there was a longer lag, between kind of the change, the very quick kind of increase in cases and the increase in deaths on the kind of other side of this, that maybe that there is just a longer leg overall or less, maybe
4: less of a strong temporal connection between those two? I'm going to follow up. I think I think that the the temporal uh, connection has gone in both directions. First of all, we keep people alive a lot longer. And second of all, the, the rate of cases and the, has just grew so much more rapidly than in the other waves. So that makes it a little longer. But there's still you know, a lot of questions here. I mean, the UK, other countries have seen deaths go up, um, but the United States seems to have had deaths kind of be higher than uh, other countries. That might be because we have a vaccination penetration that it is not as deep as other countries. But we're not that far away. I mean, um, I mean, we people like to talk about our, our lots of Americans not vaccinated and be better if more were, but we're not that different from uh, lots of Europe in terms of at least the adult rate, maybe because of, we don't have quite the penetration of boosting that is that has been lagging behind. Um, I'm not I mean, so that's interesting, Eric, that that's your your news of the, that what's caught your eye is, is the death rate. Yeah, it doesn't um, what, make
2: it right. It's just subjectively yeah. what's caught my eye.
4: What's, what caught my eye is actually a, a number of things. I've been kind of thinking about a bunch of things this week, um, following up on what we talked about last week in particular. But a few things are of note. Um, Denmark, um, UK, South Africa have all essentially announced that they're going to basically very few restrictions, um, mm-hmm. except in, in certain settings, for like, like hospitals, for example no masks no restrictions ending green passes or passes of vaccination mandates um, uh, to get in and out of places i just saw today that israel announced that they're ending the vaccine vaccine pass except in large gatherings large indoor gatherings um, everything else restaurants are just just getting ri- getting rid by of by the it.
2: way uh, adi let me ask you a question let's 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 be' if we want, we're statisticians, but let's be economists for a second or economists slash statisticians. Why would it make rational sense to do that? I can think of lots of reasons, but let's let's name a few. One could be you mandate anything, but they're not effective. That's one possibility. Um, second, where you get the greatest ROI is actually in the large indoor gatherings because that's actually where there's the most evidence. And by simplifying, I'm, I'm thinking more Cade. I'm trying to channel my decision-making colleague Kate Massey here, by simplifying the rules, maybe people pay more attention to one rule. When you're at large indoor gatherings, wear a mask, you have to be vaccinated. Let's not complicate this with a seven-branch decision tree, and I'm trying to think of this and that. Maybe you'll get greater adherence if you simplify things, and there's evidence that that's where there's the most impact. So you could construct you know, a rational story for this. I'm just trying to do that.
4: Sure, you can, but I also think that that, that it's that a lot of places... Uh, think of it as an as a administrative headache to try to enforce that all over the place. Think about it at Penn. I mean, we're I mean, I went into to get lunch, I came, came on campus, you walk into Penn Stores down at 34th Street and there's someone whose job now is to check all my vaccine vaccinations and make a little line and is that is that a worthwhile task? And so the administrative headache multiplied by every place in the country is not trivial. So, I mean, that's potentially something
1: what, what are the explicit rationales that those governments are using to back away from any of these things? Are they saying, well, we've meet certain, we're meeting certain criteria, so it's time? Or is it no. more like we don't have the political will anymore?
4: No, I think, I think that depends on the country. But I can tell you exactly why Israel's doing it, because vaccination status is not correlated with infection any longer. So as a result, it's simply a punitive action to try to get people to vaccinate in order to allow I, them I just to w- access I want to
2: places. I want to cl- clarify your point, Adi. You're saying, just to be clear, yeah. you're <laughs> not saying with hospitalizations and deaths. Yeah, right. Oh, God, no. In fact, if people get Okay, all right, let's all just make time. sure for our audience because <laughs> yeah, yeah. a lot of <laughs> right, people... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Eric, uh, let's,
1: let's, there's another dimension, and that is I think he would say if you had only recently been vaccinated, and boosted, there would even be an infection difference. For, there's immediate protection on that. So, But we can't say just in general no matter when you yeah, got
4: vaccinated. I mean, what's happening in a place like Israel, which brought vaccines and boosters on early, they just aren't seeing any, any substantive difference in the infection, not hospitalization or death rate, but infection rate. And it's just not enough. I mean, they do see a bit, maybe 25, 30%.
2: Yeah, I was about to say, I, the most recent article I read, the confidence interval for the yeah. effectiveness against Omicron on getting infected, even for yeah. boost was between 16 and 30%. That's exactly. and,
1: and, like in the immediate aftermath of the boosting, right? So uh, like two months later, three months later, it must be down from that.
4: It could be even lower than, and then, and then just throw yeah. this out. I didn't see that study, but uh, this is without the necessary gold standard. This is uh, as, Kate, as as Shane always talks about, if you aren't doing a, 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 a clinical trial, we don't know the behavior difference among back vaccinated and boosted people compared to the unvaccinated. And that that's just thrown in there in the mix. Yeah, and I guess I don't know enough about the relaxing
3: of the restrictions in the UK or Israel. Is it really about, I mean, because so far our discussion is mostly focused, again, on this vaccinated versus unvaccinated distinction. But are most of the restrictions kind of, you know, reducing that differential policy-wise? Or is it just sort of getting rid of restrictions in general, trying to basically further reopen society? In which case, probably, at least implicitly, what's being kind of traded off is kind of the public health, concern of continuing COVID with just kind of all the economic arguments for kind of reopening the economy further, relaxing travel, allowing travel again, all this type of stuff. So, I mean, I feel like most of the rational policy arguments on towards the relaxing of restrictions is not that is that this is no longer as dramatic of a public health issue as it used to be. And we've got all kinds of, you know, economic and other issues that we have to trade off against that.
4: And, and all correct, and the public is demanding it. And this is and that's something that in democracies, at least you you tend to have to take into account. And uh, I, I mean, as we're seeing what's going on in Canada, I don't know what you what you what if you've remarked about that, uh, Shane, our Canadian, but the yeah, people... no, I
3: mean, most of mo- I, I mean, I, I get most of my news kind of for, through via my social network from Canada. And most of yeah. those are still on kind of the more public health oriented side of things. So they don't, you know, I, I don't know anybody who's kind of pro, pro pro these protests, but yeah, there's substantial protests going on all over the country towards relaxing. the restrictions.
2: But I think we all agree though. Let's say there is I, you, I think the statistic you told us about, I'm going to say a year ago, at least this concept of excess deaths. Yeah. If, if there were, let's suppose I told you by relaxing some set of policies There is, you know, I would say it's one of those things that there's a crossing point. Like if I told you by relaxing the policies, there would be 50 excess deaths, you would say, well, I mean, come on. I mean, not that every life isn't important, but you would make that choice as a society. If I told you the number was five thousand, you might still. But if I told you there's hundred thousand excess deaths, then all of a sudden, that's going to start catching. Not, I mean, it would catch anybody's attention. And so, my question is, do we have any estimate of the excess deaths? Because even if it's you know a three percent difference, a five percent difference. You multiply that by a number, even the number of people in Israel, it could still lead to thousands more deaths. And at some point, you know, in the United States, when you have hundreds of millions of people, even if it's a two percent, three percent reduction in the number of people that eventually die, well, that's actually a very big number.
3: Yeah, but well, I mean, I mean, just sort of general trade-off counter argument to that without numbers involved. Audie probably has real numbers to throw at this. But I mean, how many excess deaths are there in, in the United States due to car travel? Every year, about 40,000. Right. So that we're not shutting down car travel.
4: No. And we could probably cut about t- 10,000 off of them if we just lowered our speed limits.
3: How many excess deaths are in the United
4: States due to added sugar to food? <laughs> yep. And, and, you know, I did do it. So, by the way, okay. let me answer your question. I don't know the numbers. It's, excess deaths is t- typically lags by about a month to two months. And one of the reasons why is that the CDC actually does a very good job. And, and, and it categorizes deaths, but there is a lag time to, to get the all, all the deaths. We can, um, and that, that is definitely something that we will know and we haven't known yet. But I will say, I did an analysis through the end of 2021, actually not 2021, it was really through 2020. And one of the things that I thought was quite interesting is that excess deaths in the 20 to 40-year-old range was up about 30,000 individuals. And don't, that may not sound like that much.
1: That, the,
4: the number, uh, about about hundred thousand die every year in the twenty yeah. to forty range. Yeah, and it was up by thirty thousand. That's a is, lot. Uh, it it yeah. is, but here is the best part or interesting. Not the work. Only six thousand of those, six to seven thousand, were from COVID. The rest were from other factors that we now know seem to be predominantly uh, the biggest number one factor is. Uh, suicide and overdose. Oh, I mean, they're natural—not de- not natural deaths, but—and this is—and this is—and—and and m- most people are implicating the COVID lockdowns, the the collapse of society on this particular population, ca- causing tremendous m- mental health struggle. So, okay, so uh, hold,
1: let's let's hold with that because it's a super interesting observation. Let's recap it real quick. Twenty to forty year olds in U.S. excess deaths, roughly thirty thousand, which is about a thirty percent increase on a base of one hundred thousand which is a big increase, but apparently only a fifth of those were explicitly COVID. Others were consequences of the COVID era, but not COVID directly. Yeah. Now we're talking, about 24, yeah. we're talking about 24,000 people, but how many lives have been saved by some of the policies that have been used in the shutdown? And I mean- it's, it's going to be many more than 24,000. And so for, as long as we're talking it, trade-offs, let's have the other side unpack. Yeah, as well.
3: just. Uh, but as long as we're talking trade-offs, it's also worth acknowledging that it's a lot easier to quantify. Like the COVID life yes. saves are very tangible and quantifiable. It is more difficult to quantify and make tangible some of these other – like on the other side of the coin, cost. like the shutdown yeah. of society, the yeah. kind yeah. of cost was- of that.
1: For sure. But let, oh, for sure. For sure. For um, sure. A couple other numbers to kick around here, if, but I'm calling these just from memory. I believe the U.S. is over 800,000 COVID-related deaths at this point. Over yes. The last
2: oh, well over. over. Yes.
1: Yep. And that's the biggest number in the world as well. Yes. Is astounding. Yeah. Yes. Um, where is the U.S. in terms of population versus other countries in the world? Certainly behind China, or, probably behind India, we're where who else third, are we behind? Third.
4: I think we're third. Or yeah, or we're fourth. third. Uh, the other place that would probably have as many COVID deaths if you scaled it out and may not and, and might actually be hiding many of them would be the former Soviet Union and, and its and its orbit. Um, I've I talked to some of our colleagues who know people out in, in uh, Russia and they say that the death rate is horrendous and that it's and it is massively being underreported. Certainly, um, if you look at kind of like where at the kind of collection of
3: countries that have the largest death rates. Just like not taking into account population, it's Eastern Europe mostly.
2: Yeah. Well, again, again though, child. I mean, we
3: we we want to be careful about doing too many cross-country comparisons. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Because for sure. The, the obviously, I think the driver is age demographics more than anything else. Differences. Yeah. Yep.
1: Right. Though, though, you know, I think some of the Latin American countries, Brazil, perhaps in particular, has had some real trouble, oh, and yeah. some no, of no, that was Policy. The thing, policy think, yes.
2: Eric. Yeah, I just going to say, I, so I just brought up the data. This is from Johns Hopkins, and they have the uh, mortality deaths per 100,000 in the population. Okay. And so the number one country by far, double any others, is Peru. This is according to the Johns Hopkins data. Yeah. Okay. It's okay. six hundred per hundred thousand, just to give you a sense.
1: Do we have any idea why Peru would be by I, I far the worst?
2: I, I don't know, but then followed by that, remember I said Peru is six hundred, just give you an effect size. Brazil is at three hundred per hundred thousand, yeah. then comes Poland, and then the United States is fourth. So the United States is the fourth worst country in the world on deaths per 100,000 after Peru, Brazil, Poland, the United States, the United States is roughly at around 300, a little less, 280, 290 per 300, uh, 290 per 100,000. So we're okay. talking about, well, I mean, 1% would be 1000. So we're talking about three tenths of 1%, which yeah. is about Right. I mean, that's, that's going to lead to that would be closer. That's getting close to a million deaths because we have 300 and something million people in the US. Um, And again, just to give you a sense of let's take, for example, I don't know what Canada, for example, looks to be at about 90. So less than one third the death rate. Of the US.
3: Are you, are you sure that table's not chopping off a lot of countries just for size? Because I'm looking at the New York Times deaths per 100, total deaths per 100,000, just the ranking of the countries. And the US is around 20th or so. Well,
2: I think what it's doing is here it says for the 20 countries most affected. So they're looking at the largest countries. They're not, I guess, you maybe yours, I'm making it up, maybe yours has Luxembourg or Monaco or something no, else. No, but yeah, I, I, I mean, those,
3: those you would want to exclude because, you know, you've really got a denominator problem. But like the Czech Republic is at 350 per 100,000. Okay. You know, Hungary, what's also really what, What's also
2: really fascinating is there's also a very interesting plot here. I didn't realize this. I just scrolled down. There's a bivariate scatter plot where, for each country, on the x-axis is confirmed cases, and the y-axis is number of deaths. Okay, and then, uh, and just to sh- just to let you know, I you know it doesn't report an R squared, but if I looked at if I showed you this graph, I would say the R squared is at least point nine five.
1: Yeah, you would more or less expect a very strong correlation between these two things. All right,
2: very much so, and also they actually have it on deaths per. 100,000. And then you basically see strong correlation, but in different bands, you know, in other words, the, the high countries, the medium countries and low countries, but each of them is a line, but they're mm-hmm. on different, they have different intercepts. Yeah, in so, oh, yes. it,
4: there's an intersection. Uh, interesting. I mean, IFR, which is the, the, or the really the CFR, the case fatality rate seems to really be different in different parts of the world and across different countries. And, and the United States has always been on the high side. And that is something that I've never been able to articulate. Why we're not we're not that old a country that would have a higher a higher CFR. We're certainly an uh, old country relative to almost, but we're, not, uh, I don't you know, think we're almost the Canada. entirety of the rest of the globe. But I are, are you, we, that's what are we that's, old that's... compared to Canada? Compared to uh, England? No. Uh, right, no. and they, oh, they are. My no, 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 I mean right. But I, yeah. I
3: guess if you were to fit, I mean really what we're talking about if we were to fit a regression where that mm-hmm. CFR is the outcome. Right, I would guess that age variables would be the most significant. One. Yeah, I mean, you know, I would let's, probably let's, say, let's, I, mean, the UK and Canada, I would say reporting
4: like, penetration. I think testing would be one of the most. Uh, yeah, because, and I
3: mean, there's probably something to be said. I mean, I do think the US has a much higher variance in its healthcare system than yeah. these other countries like Canada, the UK, and I think some of that, you know, when we're talking about extreme events like death, that variance is probably driving some of that as well.
4: Well, so. I'm, Go ahead, Cade.
1: You go ahead, Audie.
4: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think is fascinating, we're having this conversation about these data, data sets, and deaths is a good thing to actually talk about, because it's probably one of the most accurately estimated and, and counted quantities throughout the globe, um, and, and uh, even though that has its issues. But the, the thing that really caught my eye, which follows up from last week, which I really want to get your thoughts on, is the, the, the latest wave of Omicron has been moved through. There's a lot of numbers have been put out, and... The numbers, in particular, that people are discussing are the vaccine effectiveness rates, um, usually measured in terms not just in death rate, but usually in terms of reduction in hospitalization rates. And the these numbers are have been cited and talked about, and, and they are not they're mutually inconsistent. And we we as a, as a group should could probably hash it out because for um, it, some of the stuff coming from the CDC, which I talked about last week, it just cannot be right. And I'm seeing it repeated everywhere. and the numbers from the CDC said if you're vaccinated and boosted, you're a hundred times less likely to be hospitalized than, than unvaccinated, and about uh, 15 times less vaccinated if you're just, just, just vaccinated, uh, less likely if you're just vaccinated and not boosted. And that just doesn't make sense. And, and it just, it's an overestimate in by what I think is by a factor of 8 to 10. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, and one of the reasons why it doesn't make sense is, uh you, uh, you sent around to us during the week a lovely graph showing back from 2020 that talks about the death rates, the, the, the infection fatality rates or, or, or case fatality rates for COVID-19 compared to the flu by age. And back in 2020, that number depends on your age, of course. But at the oldest end of the spectrum, it was about 10 times more likely to die from COVID, sometimes even higher than from the flu. It didn't turn around. It didn't get to about one until you were about 10 years old. And actually, if you're younger than that, it was probably even less than one. But at our age, it was three or four times the rate or even higher. It was a big deal. So if you just take those numbers and multiply or divide it by 100, uh, that would mean (laughs) that we are 10 times less likely to die of COVID if you're vaccinated and boosted than flu, which means that if that were true across the board, we should be completely We would be seeing a lot this. less deaths. We'd be seeing death. a lot less deaths. A lot less deaths for a population seeing. that's the, 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 yeah. the adult population is 75% is vaccinated. This just doesn't make sense. And so just to follow it up, I did some research. And I went to some other government sites here in the United States that are saying about ninety-one percent effectiveness. I went to other countries; most places are saying about ninety-one to ninety-two percent effectiveness. Well, that makes sense. For, that's consistent. That makes with sense. 10 to one.
2: 10 to that's 1. right,
4: and that's for uh, and that's for sixty plus. For younger than sixty, it might actually quite be a bit higher. Um, but uh, but the older sixty is where you're still. Yeah, seeing I mean, most the New York the,
3: T- the New York Times has it as twenty, like their kind of age adjusted <laughs> average, you know, kind of single number is twenty times. For deaths, between We're unvaccinated deaths. and fully 20. vaccinated.
2: What's, ac- what's actually a very interesting, it, it's its really interesting data. What's also interesting, just breaking down one step further, the numbers I gave you, the Johns Hopkins website also has something that's interesting, which is the case fatality rate. So given <clears> you get COVID, with what rate do you die? What's interesting to this data, assuming this data is accurate, it's from Johns Hopkins site. It's the same number, essentially, we've been seeing all along. It's 1.2%. It's that same ratio that we've been seeing, we've been talking about on the air for the last two years, which is conditional on you getting COVID, about 1.2% of the people appear to be, that's the case fatality rate. And that puts us not horribly worse than a lot of other countries.
3: But I, I, that's, it's, it's interesting to me that that is kind of has, because you know all of our improvements at treating COVID should have lowered that.
4: But is it but that's that, probably the overall know, aggregate?
3: Yeah, the subset of people that are getting COVID are substantially different and maybe unhealthier
4: now than they used to be. Yeah. And that's what's kind of counterbalancing that. But if that's not a that's not that's just an aggregate number, that's not a continuous number. They're not they're not pointing out, that's not saying what it, the current case fatality rate is, which is now a lot, do, lot lower. Do you think it is a
1: lot lo- lower right now? Oh, yes.
4: I, I mean, oh, absolutely. The number they are being tossed around right now, the case fatality rate. Remember, this is the Oh, that was average. a cumulative
2: case. That's case a cumulative. Fatality rate. Uh, kind of the current uh, yes. versus. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This, yeah. Right. this is, this is Sorry, cumulative. I, I misunderstood. The and by the like, way, it might have been dropped. I think it was more like 1.5% was the ratio we saw before. And then if you take a weighted average, it means we're probably well down maybe into the half a percent range or something even lower than that.
4: Right. And, but the current rate that is being estimated, it's hard to, to figure this out because you have to split between vaccinated and unvaccinated. And then all of this is different by age. So it's just a kind of a weighted average kind of aggregated. It, it's down around 0.1% um, or so. Uh, per, uh, particularly if you're vaccinated, it's, it's certainly going to be in that. Up yeah, up it's up great. Up po- that po- uh,
2: that's an excellent point to make, Adi. This is mm-hmm. a weighted average across age, It's a weighted average across comorbidities. It's a weighted average across vaccination status. There's, I mean, one point. I mean, I think we'd all agree if you're healthy, and you're under the age of, let's say, seventy, and you're triply vaccinated, and you get COVID, your death rate's nowhere near one point two percent. That's a way, way, way overestimate. It it, it might be fifty times too high.
1: The just Did y'all see the trouble that Joe Rogan got into on his podcast this past week? Because apparently the quote they showed that I that I saw that got him in trouble was saying something along the lines of, hey, if you're a healthy 21 year old, I wouldn't worry about getting vaccinated. Like that was enough for all these artists. He's on Spotify, apparently. And some of the artists on Spotify, some old school liberals like Joni Mitchell and Neil Young and Nils Lofgren, a guitarist started pulling their music as a boycott because of that comment. Now, look, I, I, way, I, 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 I think there's to a say, lot of things that are unhelpful, I, but that one doesn't seem unreasonable to me.
4: It's yeah. not unreasonable. I thought that there was more to it. In fact, I actually got got to, into a Facebook discussion with some of my old college friends um, who had who were promoting the idea that we should all be dropping Spotify. And I, I responded, I think that is, inappropriate for a bunch of reasons, but I didn't even know what Joe Rogan had said by the time this discussion yeah. was happening. I was assuming yeah. it was kind of craziness, right? Yeah, right. You know, don't and I it and then I actually dug yeah. into it and I found out, no, he didn't say don't vax. Although apparently he personally didn't get vaccinated and did talk a lot about that. And he actually got COVID and apparently got very sick. Um, but uh, the issue, one of the issues was that he was saying that young, healthy people shouldn't bother getting vaccinated, which for the most part is probably not good advice, um, but for it's certainly society, debatable. For, for a know. society,
1: it's, it's not good advice. But it's certainly
4: debatable. And I have to say, you know, I was in two, two couple of comments. You know, I saw a bunch of, bunch of young, you know, they weren't from Penn, they were from Villanova. And Villanova, like Penn, forces the students to get boosted. Um, that's requirement. And these these guys all had their, their patches on for they had just gotten their booster it was the last day of eligible uh, that they had to do otherwise be kicked off campus, and I said, did you ever think about why you know why you're doing this? No, nah, they made us do. We had to do it. Um, but booster shots for ages about eighteen to twenty five. If you actually look at the FDA discussion on it, and I was actually pretty disgusted by it. They saw they were they saw that they were in elevated increases of myocarditis in the young men, and and the, the elevated increase. Well, they decided it was only two cases, so they in the in the uh, in the pool, and therefore they didn't bother with it. But if you simply do a, a comparison, two cases out of twenty thousand—I think that's how many there were—maybe um, uh, even ten thousand—is about a five five to ten thousand one per ten thousand rate, one one to five to ten thousand, which is less than, I mean, which is higher than the rate of myocarditis from the vaccine, and I mean, sorry, from the illness, from actually getting COVID. And it's isn't. It, I just looked, listened, to it and I said, you know, isn't this something that the kids should be able to decide on their own whether they want to do? Because, frankly, the benefit of boosting to a 22-year-old male who's already been vaccinated, okay, it's but just you, not there.
1: Okay. But what about the policy implications as a group? So one of the reasons we impose this on campuses is because we have staff and faculty, and they want to keep these guys from being vectors.
4: Mm-hmm. Well, th- again, that leads to the conversation we talked about earlier. The if boosting was significant enough of uh, a yeah, way okay, to so draw boost, down, your, your
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean and, and that,
3: yeah, it doesn't seem like there's much evidence that boosting
1: okay, okay, helped, but in, this, in that
3: particular is it, element of it.
1: Okay, yeah. but are we just are we <laughs> resulting as Adi likes to quote um uh, uh Annie, um because they had to make these policies before we had all these data and on the effectiveness of boosting. So we're, we're sitting here now like, okay, data just came in hot off the press, a new study out of Israel. This policy they announced six weeks ago is over the top. Yeah. yeah. A little bit of that.
4: A little bit of that, but we got to revise. I mean, is is the committee at universities meeting every day to discuss our policies? You know, we're talking about trying to. I'm, try, I'm trying to meet with some of my undergrads to, to 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 go to dinner with them, and I was, you know, politely informed that the school won't pay for that. Uh, yeah. at, at what point do I, do is this going to end? Are they are they meeting yeah. regularly to look? at Oh yeah, Br- Mawr okay. right now they can't even do. You can't. You still
3: can't eat on campus. Yeah, there you Bro, go. And okay, it's okay, like okay, good. these good. kind of policies.
1: OK, you know, so this, this is actually I think this is really interesting from an institutional perspective. And this probably is a learning from this last two years. And we had this conversation. Um, we had this conversation a few weeks ago with one of our guests about needing more agility to the decision making and need more responsiveness. But, you know, these large educational institutions aren't known for agility, but it is entirely possible. This is one of the most important lessons from this whole experience, that we we need to understand, this is our understanding is evolving. We're going to do the best we can at this moment, and we're going to shift as new information comes. And by the way, tell people that's what's going to happen, and then move. But that's just not the nature of these institutions.
4: It's very practical, and we talked about institutions. But Shane, let me point out, it's also individual behavior. So I saw my neighbor across the street, and I said, "Didn't you supposed to go to Florida?" She said, "No, we canceled because there are too many unvaccinated people there." And I said, unvaccinated? You're afraid of them? You should be afraid of everybody. If you're afraid of getting COVID, the vaccinated are just as capable of transferring it to you than anybody else. She's like, what are you talking about? That's not true. And I said, well, thank you, but that's my business to know. And it is true.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, honestly, Florida, where the vaccination rates a couple of percentages different than Pennsylvania.
1: Yeah, right. Is is it
3: at all substantial?
1: Well, it depends on Philadelphia versus... Yeah, you know, there's, yeah. A there's a pretty big difference okay. there. Okay. Um, all right, guys. Why don't we wrap the COVID discussion there for now? We're not going to be stopping it anytime soon, so we'll have a chance to revisit next time. That has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. Three quarters ago, come back and join us after the break.
0: You're listening to Wharton
1: Moneyball
4: on Business Radio.
1: Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics. Coming to you on SiriusXM. You guys can jump in here on the, con- on the conversation in a way. You can reach out to us via Twitter or via email. Twitter, our handle is at WMoneyball, at WMoneyball. We follow our guests. We tweet about the world of sports analytics. We love to hear from you, ideas, reactions, whatever you got. Also, we have a mailbag via email. The address there is moneyball at Moneyball at wharton dot upenn.edu we read everything you send us and we enjoy hearing from you suggestions complaints ideas musings send them our way we get as many as we can on the air but we're looking at everything we do see guys we have three quarters of sports in front of us We have a very interesting nba executive with us in q4 talking about technology and the state of the nba between now and then a lot of sports catch up on nothing more important than The National Football League, we know now who the Super Bowl contenders are going to be in this crazy season. And very appropriately, I'd say very appropriately, given the craziness of the season, nobody expected these two teams to be the final two teams. So over the weekend, a couple of great games again, hallmark of the last two weekends. Any reactions, anything catch your eye about the Rams over Niners and the Bengals over the Chiefs?
3: Well, I I want to kind of throw out one thing. And it's to salute you, Cade, because I feel like last week coming off those amazing divisional games, um, Eric and I especially were just going crazy. We're like, who, who in the next 10 years could possibly beat Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes? You're like, let's pump the brakes a little bit. Uh-huh. These things that seem inevitable aren't necessarily inevitable. And I obviously want to just kind of frame what happened in the AFC championship game in the context of that. You were right. We should pump the brakes. You know, I mean, it's it's weird seeing Patrick Mahomes ha- having a bad game, or at least a bad half a game. I I don't think I've ever seen such a bad half a game from him before, but it, yeah. it, it happened. And again, it, it it just goes to show that a the number of elite quarterbacks that we have in play in the National Football League is ever growing, and not you know even if one looks dominant, it's not inevitable.
1: Well, I I appreciate that, Shane. And and, I mean, I believe me, I was with you guys for most of it. It's just that 20 minutes after 20 minutes of it, I was like, hold on, something doesn't feel right here. But I I think the point you're one of the one of the main points you're making is something that that we've noted in this podcast before. And Eric connects it to relatively recent research in marketing, which is intra-consumer variation or intra-individual variation. We tend to Want to type people and spread them out as different kinds of people, but every person is like a dot and it's the mean behavior. And it just really robs our understanding of a lot of richness. And what we're, what the, the way I would explain Mahomes is look, Everybody has subpart A's. Now, look, we got a pretty extreme draw from him in that second half. But every QB out there has good halves and bad halves. And we watched two phenomenal halves in the divisional weekend and came to believe that that's all he could produce. Of course, that's not all he could produce.
2: Yeah, I, I just want to tie something to, you know, obviously football as well, but a related topic, which is I don't remember the last time Tom Brady, by the way, who's now we've announced his retirement, had a bad game uh in the playoffs. I don't I'm sure he has. He had many. But I don't remember when that last one was. Shane, who's our expert on Brady, is thinking really hard about when that was. Um I'll say also the following. What I saw the Bengals do to Mahomes is what I've always said. There was only I mean, forget the Eagles where they, you know, Brady had one of the greatest days in that losing Super Bowl. The Giants Figured out the pattern to beating Tom Brady or any quarterback, even the greatest of all time. If you can rush four guys and you can be disruptive, every quarterback is going to struggle throwing against seven men. And you know what? The Cincinnati Bengals' defensive line did a tremendous job pressuring Mahomes in the second half. The Rams' defensive line, I saw it live against Brady. They weren't rushing six guys, seven guys, because Brady will eat that up. He'll shred you. They were rushing four guys and dropping seven. And so to me, it's if you want to stop a great quarterback, if you want to see that, if you want to have an opportunity to have that intra quarterback variation. By the way, thanks, Kate. I thought your analogy between within-person heterogeneity and cross-person heterogeneity is exactly what I do research on now. It's one of my favorite topics got to get pressure with three or four guys so you can drop enough because if you give these guys open windows in time they'll absolutely shred you but even i was surprised at the degree of intra or cross half variation between mahomes that was shocking to me
1: real quick empirical observation on underscoring what you just said eric since he blitzed at a much lower rate than mahomes has seen over the course of the season and i don't know it'd be nice to see some stats on the the expected pressures versus the actual pressures, given the number of guys they rushed, they were often rushing three guys and then having one yeah, kind I, of in a kind of in a and, and you know,
3: Mahomes. Uh, in contrast, at least the Super Bowl last year, which is also where we saw him struggle. I feel like they were, I mean, they, he was getting he had much more time in the pocket, you know, on Sunday this Sunday than he did during that Super Bowl but it's still, I mean, it still had the same kind of effect. The receivers weren't open or he wasn't seeing the open receivers or whatever. No, what I really meant, what I really
2: meant Shane was you need a great defensive line, great linebackers and a great secondary. And you can stop these guys anytime. That's right.
4: That's right. (laughs) And an off (laughs) day by the guy.
2: Right. I have a lot of
4: questions here. Um, I watched the games. Uh, The uh, do does do the Bengals have all those things or this was just a good game for them. Um, and, and I'd like you to answer that. The second thing is, this is a question that, that occurred to me as I was talking over the game with, you know, I was, at the, I was at the gym and everybody's talking about the games and these are not analytics people. And I thought it very entertaining as they're all talking about how nobody runs enough anymore and it's just terrible and the analytics analytics is ruining the game. But one of the points that one of the guys made was- Sorry, you're not player. working out at,
1: at the pin gym, I gather. You're no, right. I am
4: not. Uh, anyway, so uh, one of the points the guys made was a former player said something interesting about how- And my observation is, I was always seeing he Mahomes is running around like crazy. He's amazing at it, but without the rest that would he would get with some more running, he gets exhausted. I mean, that's got. Do you think that plays a part, or is that am I just fishing?
3: No, I mean I think it does, and I think you know a running game does a few things for you. it keep it. It does keep a defense from consistently only rushing three guys. You know, I mean, right? if a defense is really only rushing three guys and putting everybody back in court coverage, the obvious kind of scheme response, response to that is run. To be, you're gonna get like, I mean, and they were getting chunk yardage with their running game in the first half, even against more uh, more people being rushed. So, yeah, I mean, I think you know, I I don't agree with the general sort of teams should rush more, but in this specific case, I do think the Chiefs with the big lead probably should have rushed a little bit more in the second half specifically.
1: I want to I want to take the moment to jump in with a question that we received via email this past week from Bedford Liddon. Lyden or Leiden? Bedford, apologies for not knowing the exact pronunciation on your last name. But Bedford was picking up on our conversation last week about defenses getting gassed. And so it's a little bit connected to Adi asking about Mahomes getting gassed. Uh, but Bedford's question was, Uh, With respect to an NFL game, do you think football defenses get gassed, but offenses don't? He's basically asking, why. we argued that this is what happened over the course of the game, and we were musing about wishing we had analytics to quantify it exactly, and by God, by the end of that Chiefs-Bills game, neither defense could do anything. They were just cutting like a hot knife through butter. And that's all rested on this idea that defenses get gassed over the course of the game in a way that offenses don't. Why would that be? Well,
3: Well, I mean, aren't offensive players, at least the skill players, substituted more? Like wide receivers typically come in and out of you know, I mean, any one wide receiver, even like the Mike Evanses of the world or whatever, are only used in maybe three out of every four offensive plays. Whereas I think defensive players like the you know, Jalen Ramsey probably played every single snap of that game, for, for example.
1: Okay, that's a that's a great hypothesis. Well, another one that out that struck me was in terms of the lines, it seems more exhausting to be the attacking line than the defending line. And the offensive line is essentially defending the quarterback and fending off the attackers as opposed to the guys who are trying to invade. Is that fair to say? That, again, is something that we ought to know analytically.
4: Well, you think about it in terms of their size. The offensive linemen are these very big men, and the defensive linemen are are comparatively smaller, um, and they have to be much faster, so they probably run a lot more just the very active trying to get around. I'm not, sure. I'm
1: not sure the physical comparison is that dramatic in that direction. Uh, certainly. Well, some. You know, the other thing I had to get, would
4: have to guess is that the offense calls the plates. So if you're tired, you pick something right. that allows you to get a rest. And the defense just has to go. It's thrown at him and, and probably Cade, just does the same thing.
2: Kate, you're also talking about the classic argument that's given by the old, older school coaches that if we're running the ball, we're controlling the clock. We're 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 going forward. We're not going backwards, protecting the quarterback. We're going to wear down the other team's defensive line. I'm just saying those are empirically testable in the sense that, you know, now with motion tracking data. Yeah. You can actually measure the speed of a player, the, you know, the, the quickness of the player in the first, let's say two to three yards. You could probably even measure, I'm sure like PFF and other places have measures of, you know, win rate that they, an expected win rate based on the angle and speed taken of the other player. So this is a great set of hypotheses where next time that we have, you know, whether it's Eric Eager or someone from PFF on, we should just ask them like, what data are you guys looking at about offense versus defense and they're kind of slowing down over the course of a game
1: right and of course the better we understand that the more it can be optimized within game and so i mean could it be that there needs to be more substitutions in some parts of the roster than others i don't know presumably coaches already do a pretty good job of that but it might be interesting to look at it a little more closely so bedford thank you for that that email bedford from chicago illinois delighted to hear from you guys uh, sorry go
2: ahead
1: well, I was curious about the other game, the Rams 49ers game at um, uh, the, uh, I, I didn't have a strong dog in that fight, but I, one thing that jumped out to me, I think it was the last time the Niners had the ball before the interception for before their last series, they were driving and they got hung up. They were just across midfield. They had like a third and two and couldn't do anything with it. And then they punted. So it's late in the game. The game's tied, right? It's late in the game. The game's tied and they're on the other team's 40 or something. Yeah. And his fourth, third and two should have been a two-play two strategy or something. Anyway, I, they netted, what, 20 yards, 25 yards? With it was play? one of
2: the worst analytic plays. In mm-hmm. the, I mean, it was such a crucial time of the game, and you have exactly the setup right, and it was atrocious. Yeah. That is, I mean, there's nothing clearer. Your fourth quarter, beyond the 50-yard line, fourth and two, not fourth and eight, fourth and two. And what are you going to net from the punt? And those yards, you know, they the expected number of point difference between the 15 yard line or the 35 or the 40 yard line is very small. I thought that was one of, I knew the minute that happened, I'm like, I, I didn't even have a dog in the race. And I'm like, You deserve to lose the game for making that call. (laughs) No, I'm saying there is no analytic strategy that that is a good play. Yeah, I mean, I can
3: only come. The only situation I can come up with where I might prefer to punt in that situation, and it wasn't the situation, but where there's like maybe 13 seconds or 15 seconds left in the game, where if you miss the field goal, or, or or if you like, or if you turn it over. You've essentially like, you know, that a turnover is the only scenario where the other team can score on. Right. They don't have
1: time to move down the field,
3: you know, so. But but I mean, that wasn't the situation. There were several minutes left. So I agree. It was, uh, you know, I I don't know. They have that cowardly punt standard or whatever. And I mean, this has got to be one of the like, you know, 99th percentile of like kind of cowardly punts, basically, or or cowardly fourth down decisions. It was unexplainable.
1: I I, I didn't catch the game real time. I was looking at highlights after the fact I was on the plane when it happened and I hadn't heard any hubbub. There probably was a lot of hubbub, but I was watching that and like what happened there? Hold on. You've got to be kidding me. They gave up the ball in that situation. Um, by the way, one other quick observation just from watching two sets of highlights back-to-back yesterday evening was the tight ends. Kelsey and Kittle, it's just amazing to see those guys. Whenever you watch just the highlights of those games back-to-back, there's so much amazing tight end play. Now, look, both of those guys lost, but it's just extraordinary the weapon that that kind of tight end provides a team. And it, they're rare, but when they exist, it's just such an advantage.
3: Yeah, no, I mean, like, they, they are, like, when they're kind of, when that connection's there, like what Mahomes has with Kelsey, it's, it's almost unstoppable. You're kind of like, why doesn't he just throw it to that I, guy? I don't. I mean, I mean, you know, thinking back, I mean, Brady to Gronk is like, you know, yes. Brady's thrown a lot of touchdown passes, but Gronk by far has the, yeah. has the largest share of them because that was just a similarly kind of unstoppable combo for for several years.
1: I wonder to what extent those guys, I, it'd be nice to go back and look at how those guys are rated coming out of college and how other tight ends are rated coming out of college. How diagnostic are those extreme, those outliers at that position because they're so unusual and so valuable when they exist? How di- How well, well do we forecast? We them?
2: had one this year, as you remember. I'm pretty sure he was a rookie this year, right? Kyle Pitts wasn't the out of guy Florida. that Yeah, yeah. Got a like Florida was that's
3: number four pick.
2: Number four pick, right. That went to Atlanta. I mean, I don't think he had as great a year as people expected him to have, but people are putting him conceptually in the same league as like Mm -hmm. an elite, like, you know, the Tony Gonzalez's, the Gronks, the Mm -hmm. Kittles of the world. I mean, the fact for a tight end to be drafted fourth shows you that when you have that transformative type player, and I I agreed, I was watching the game and I thought what Shane was saying, why don't you throw it to these guys every single time? Like (laughs) they don't see
1: To be fair, we thought we said that about Tyreek Hill the week before. It's like, hold on, he busted that thing at the end of the game. We're like, hold on, if he can just do that when he wants to, why don't you throw it to him more often? Now, they tried to throw it to him at a very key moment in Sunday's game, and it didn't work out. And so even Tyreek Hill isn't inevitable. Yeah. So what do you think about the match going forward? Early thoughts on the Super Bowl, Rams versus – it's three and a half, I think, is the opening line ramps by three and a half. They're home, of course. You know, the crazy thing is we saw 50 something Super Bowls without anybody being in their home stadium. And now we have two in two years.
2: Right.
3: Yeah, no, and I mean, the kind of, I think one of the kind of compel- like, compelling kind of, uh, you know, sort of battles I think going into that matchup, uh, a big part of kind of Cincinnati's success will be can they kind of keep enough pressure off Joe Burrow with that amazing rush that? L, you know, Los Angeles has, you know, we saw that, you know, the answer in, in the in the Tampa Bay game was that they weren't able to keep that, 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 uh, that defensive line at bay. And it really affected the performance of Brady in that game. Joe Burrow seems to be able to succeed despite no. all the pressure he gets. I mean, he gets back like nine times and still wins. So maybe it doesn't matter as I, much. I don't know, but I agree. At least the conventional wisdom would be Cincinnati's in trouble because there's no way they can stop that rush, but
1: but this goes back. Burrow's been playing this way since he was at LSU, and it's it's it, we need to have it. I, I'm sure this number exists. The simplest version of it is just you know passer rating or CPOE or something um, under dress or out of the pocket or something like that. But he seems. He seems to have the ability to perform under a wide range of circumstances. And, of course, one of the strategies, because he can do that, they're just like, you know, let's just go, you know, five wide and I'll figure it out. You know, it's like, just give me a lot of targets out there. And his processing is so much advanced that he's able to take advantage of it. He just wins that way.
2: Maybe. And maybe, you know, I'm biased. You talked about looking forward to the Super Bowl. Maybe I'm biased because I was at the game where the Rams beat the Buccaneers. If the Bucks don't force two or three turnovers, and let's be clear who it was. It was the running back. I guy that Came back from the torn Achilles
3: Akers. Acres. acres.
2: If he doesn't fumble the ball twice in the uh, fourth quarter, I would say the Rams win that game 30 to 10, 30 to 14. I mean, the Rams were routing the Buccaneers in that game. And I saw a really good Rams team on that day. I just mm-hmm. always like to think of peak performance. I just get a sense for me. If the Rams play the best they can play, if they play a good, clean football game, nothing special, just play as great as they can play. I can't. I just think this is their year. They're built to win the Super Bowl. They have a running game, a strong defense, a strong defensive line, and Stafford can win you the game. You know, they're not stuck with Jared Goff. they they got Stafford. Stafford will win you the game given the opportunity and they have great receivers too. I, I just uh, saw again, I, I saw them dominate. I know Cincinnati but Eric, has but you saw
1: you saw a game between now and then. You saw the Niners game yesterday, and the Niners aren't Tampa Bay, and they were played pretty even that game, it seems to me.
2: The Niners have a better defense than Tampa Bay had this season. Tampa Bay's defense was beaten up all year. And, you know, the reason Tampa Bay won the Super Bowl last year because Brady put a lot of points on the board in a, in a bunch of games. Tampa Bay's defense was beaten up. Their secondary, I think there was a time during the year, I think Shane will remember this too, the entire Tampa Bay defense was out. The entire secondary was out. I think. I don't think I wouldn't have rated the nine. I would have rated the Niners defense much better than Tampa Bay's defense this year. Okay.
1: Well, it's only one side of the ball though. I mean, Garoppolo was a far cry from Brady. So net, 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 net. They had a pretty even match. Yeah.
2: Sunday. I like the, I like the Rams, but that's just my, that's just my pick in the game. I just think they're built to win it. But you know, Joe Burrow, I agree. He he won a game with, I think he was, you said, Cheney he was sacked nine times. He was then wasn't say, sacked at all. Yeah. This guy, I mean, Cincinnati's not going to go easily. How about that? Did you, did yeah, you no, and I mean, I I, do, I, I,
3: I agree. The Rams are on paper, just kind of lining up the personnel, like seemingly should be. It should be kind of a mismatch. or I'm certainly not surprised that they're favorites, and I would, I would guess that that point spread, if anything, increases probably over the next Agreed. couple of weeks. Well, I think, I mean, um, if but we... Joe Burrow is like kind of that, you know, the, the mystery, you know, kind of the, can I, the can magical moment.
4: The, uh, who would you say is the better quarterback, Stafford or Burrow? Seems to me it would be Burrow. So, mean it, versus Variance?
3: Uh, well, give
4: me the full score. What do you think?
1: Well, it's also the second, the guys in his second year versus yeah. 12th or 13th or whatever Stafford has been around. But Stafford it's a very, has some
4: really uh, underthrown balls. I mean, a little, what do I know, right? It just looks like he's not at the, not great anymore. Maybe he was good. Great question. Now.
1: See, I love the I love the Mars perspective. I love Audie's questions. He asks the real good, insightful, you know, yeah, Mars questions. Who's the better quarterback here? Right, it's a great question. And By
4: that the way, matters. I mean, we're, number we're, one, that's the first thing that matters. One,
1: one observation that struck me today, thinking about this Super Bowl, is that there's no angst about these not being, including the best, the best team in NFL. There's no angst about that. I mean, Tampa Bay, Buffalo, Casey, these are probably, you know, the Rams may be in the conversation, our power rankings, they're third, but no one really thinks that the Rams and the Bengals are the best team, but there's no angst about that in college football. There'd be all this angst about, well, these aren't the best teams. And why is that? I think it's because college football used to just pluck two teams and put them in the game. And, or for actually decades before that, they just voted on who the best was. And so there's this tradition of it being very important to being able to identify who best is. NFL hasn't had that. They've always had this playoff and no one worries about it. I love the knockout approach. This is, this is a long rant on let's do more knockouts. Let's make them out on the field and let's not worry about not crowning the quote best team. Let's let it be determined on the field.
4: I think that we as analysts have caused this.
1: Well, let's let's back off of it then. All right, guys. That's been two quarters. We got two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break.
2: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball
4: on Business Radio.
1: Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into Q3. Starting the second half here with another Open Topics line. Guys, I know there's some big sports to talk about, but I've got to start with it. Trivia question for you. What do you think tickets are going for in Lubbock tonight for a basketball matchup, men's basketball between number 23 Texas and number 14 Texas Tech? If you wanted the cheapest seat in the house, 15,000 person stadium in Lubbock, Texas, tonight to watch number 14 Tech play number 23 Texas, what do you think you'd pay? $75.
2: Well, I can see it on the rundown, no, so I'm not gonna guess.
1: <laughs> it's probably a lot more
2: because otherwise you wouldn't be asking the question.
1: So, so, but, but. so I, this was the and then if you want so you're gonna pay $350 to walk in the door. If you want to get in the lower lower decks, you're gonna need to pay close to a thousand. Why in the world?
3: Yeah, taking, I mean, my,
1: I, I'm completely miscalibrated
3: because I've only ever seen Penn play basketball, and I think that cost me about ten bucks.
1: <laughs> I'm surprised it cost you ten. Well, this is the thing that, that Chris Beard is a is a Longhorn basketball coach. He was the Texas Tech basketball coach, and folks at Tech aren't inclined to like the Longhorns anyway. In fact, there's some real animosity there. And then UT stole their coach, who took him to the finals, took him to overtime against UVA. Best best achievement in the major sports that Tech has ever had. They stole their coach, and so here goes Beard back to Lubbock for the first time. They are they are sincerely concerned about his physical safety. It's going to be amazing in Lubbock this evening. Y'all might want to dial it up on TV. The, the, I can't imagine that against two kind of middling, mid-12, big-12. Actually, Tech is pretty good. Big-12 teams, the tickets are going for what they're going for. Just a little update from down here in the sticks in Texas. Eric, talk about down in the sticks. Australian Open, Rafa Nadal takes number 21. We saw it coming, but then – you know he had, to, he had to do something special in the, in, the, in the finals to get it done. Talk to us about that match. You wake up, you get up at three thirty Eastern to watch this match, and the dog goes two sets down. What were you thinking at the beginning of the third set? What were you thinking?
2: Well, first, uh, you always t- you talk about our Twitter handle @wmoneyball. Um, at W Moneyball at three thirty in the morning. I tweeted, "Do not worry, fans, yes, Wharton Moneyball is up watching this tennis match, So I just so all our fans know I was keeping an eye on things. <laughs> Um, It was actually very simple what had to change for Nadal to have a chance. In the first two sets, Nadal's, when he was returning the ball, not just on his service return, but his shot return, were all landing in the service box. Which means that Daniel Medvedev was standing inside the baseline, hitting shots, and any top pro will absolutely slice you if they're inside the line and you're behind the line. Then what changed in the third, fourth, and fifth set, it entirely reversed. So, matter of fact, you asked me last week about squash. What (laughs) diagnostic will I be looking for? And I said, who's in front? Well, I would say the same of tennis. It's who's standing inside the baseline and who's standing behind the baseline. So Nadal basically determined, I can't win hitting from behind the baseline. I'm going to take two steps forward. And if he passes me, he passes me. All of a sudden, Nadal shots 90% of the third set was 92% landed behind the service line. So all of a sudden, he's now hitting the ball deeper. Uh, Medvedev was making unforced errors, which he made almost none in the first and second set. And all of a sudden, uh, Medvedev's serve went from 135 miles an hour, we talked about fatigue, it went to about 125 miles an hour. he, say, eh, what's the difference? Well, no, it's a big difference between 135 and 125. Now, all of a sudden, Nadal's getting all the returns back. There's not as many aces. And so, but no, I thought Nadal was done. I had no way to forecast that he was going to be able to turn around, let's call it court positioning, which essentially determined the rest of the match. Mm-hmm.
1: Is it surprising, Eric, that there was something seemingly so fundamental he would play one way for two sets and then change and it would make that big a difference?
2: Yes, it would. It would. But let's also remember um, yes and no. Um, He was up. It was either five, two or five, three in the second set. He blew the second set. Okay. He had, not only did he have a break up in the second set serving at five to three, meaning why should I change? I'm about to win the second set. He had two times where he was up what they call a mini break in the tiebreaker, which is what it went to. Like he was up four to two. He was up five to three and he lost seven to five. Mm -hmm. And so from that point of view, he might have been thinking, why should I change in the second set? I'm winning this set. I see. So but no. And then also, I think the key point in the match was Nadal was serving two, three in the third. So down two, three, but on serve. Love 40. Oh my, oh, my. And that's even Medvedev after the match said, you know, maybe if I had hit one more winner, um, I'd have been up four, two. And then all of a sudden he goes, maybe I got tight. I hit one winner there and then the match is over. Wow. And So, you know, it, it came down to that knife edge. But then and let me comment again in the fifth set, Nadal serving five, four for the match, five, four for the match up 30 love. Hmm. Medvedev wins four straight points to tie it at five all. And you go, well, oh here it comes. The younger guy's going to win. And then, no, Nadal broke him back and then won seven, five in the fifth. So it Eric, was, talk, it was, talk, talk
1: talk about that for a moment, the younger guy. So there's a couple of things there. One, what way do, what, what does it go in tennis? Having been there as many times as Nadal has been there, do you think there's much – does that count for much? And the other was the conditioning. When I saw how many games they played, I wondered if Nadal, even though he's an older guy – just had a conditioning event. I don't know. I don't have any idea, but I wondered, did you, do you think that, that fatigue played a
2: factor?
3: Yeah, I guess how, the, that was kind of going to be my action. How much of this was physical versus mental? Do you think this kind of change around? Or this transition? Good
2: question. I think it was some of both. I I find it hard to believe that the cardio, overall cardio, remember, uh, as of six weeks ago, Nadal's foot was injured. He wasn't. He was on crutches. So I find it hard to believe that he had better cardio than Daniel Medvedev, who's 10 years younger than he is. Uh, I I just find that hard to believe. Um, No, Nadal looked tired. I think a lot of it was been there, done that. Um, I think also Nadal maybe knows how, here's what he might know. He might know how to pace himself more. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I'll make this up. I'm down 40, love Medvedev is serving. Well, you know what? That game's over. And, -hmm. you know, maybe I'm not going to put as much effort except into certain points. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I think also the experience, I think Medvedev markedly, Nadal played better, but Medvedev played worse in sets three, four or five. There's no doubt in my mind. Now, whether it's because he smelled the finish line or not, I don't know.
1: Eric, is there anything like expected points in tennis? Is there enough stochasticity in tennis for that to be a thing? Like, how do we judge the quality of play? Is it strictly a matter of like unforced errors versus winners? Is it something about that ratio? When you look at when you try to get to the fundamentals of their play and strip out some of the noise, what do you do in tennis? What do you do?
2: Well, there obviously this gets back to, you know, why we have kind of advanced analytics, which is, you know, we've always talked about this. What's the old scorecard in baseball? Home runs, RBIs, walks, etc. Tennis for years, it's aces, double faults, winners, unforced errors, right? It's the same kind of I'll call primitive in a, in a not in a positive sense, primitive box score. Now, they obviously have shot placement. They obviously have Uh, you know, I'm probably, I've not seen this, but they must have an analysis of expected number of points given where you are on the court and everything else like that. They just must. And maybe even how they score unforced errors has become more sophisticated.
1: Well, so for example, you are saying you might place a really nice shot deep and in the corner and really take your opponent far into his backcourt. That is an expected point of some kind. But if he returns it really nicely, then that's, he's, generated some above expected performance. And so just where the guys are and where the shots are, every time that happens, you could generate a sort of expected point win or not.
2: They have to, because they have motion tracking data. Like they even said during the match, like here's how many miles this person has run and this person has run. And so they know exactly where everybody is on the court at all times. And so- well, our,
1: our friend, I'm going to abuse her name, Stephanie Koppelcheck, from, um, from Zealous. Has, has probably got these in her model. She's, she's built a, a, basically down to the primitive model of tennis. So she's got, I'm sure she's got exactly that. Okay, let's change sports and let's make a brief stop in Major League Baseball. We talked about the Hall of Fame for so long and with, with such good forecasting ability that there was kind of a non-event, at least for us, when it happens. Well, there, a big talk talk us only one uncertainty. On it.
4: There's only one uncertainty because Ortiz was, was well into the 80s um, and we didn't know how much he dropped back with the secret vote. Um, and he per- dropped back a little. I don't think he ended up at seventy-eight percent, approximately
1: seventy-five. Yeah, being not, the threshold seventy-five. But uh,
4: seventy-five threshold, but not not as much as uh, Bonds and Clemens had been dropping back in the past. And so, as predicted, he was in Bonds, Clemens, Shilling out. And uh, there's a lot of you know discussion about that because for lots of reasons we've had it. Um, and uh, I, th- I actually think the Hall is making a mistake. I mean, to not honor bonds, Clemens, and even and absolutely Schilling with because they deserve to be in it based on their on field criterion, despite the 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 controversies is not good for for the Hall of Fame.
3: Yeah, no, and I mean I agree. I think this is not a particularly analytical argument, but I think, you know, there's been plenty of people in the hall that have their own controversies, maybe, you know, and I there's plenty of, I've been to Cooperstown there's plenty of room on those plaques you could if you want to include these guys but have kind of an asterisk like played in the steroid era or <laughs> yeah, suspected, yeah. you could always I mean I mean be transparent put you know put that information on there if you kind of feel like you know you want to sort of have that be available as information to people but I agree excluding people um based on you know kind of suspicion as well as you know just sort of like you know non you know uh, it just it, it never it hasn't sit well for me forever. Let, but I mean, let, obviously, people like Bonds and Clemens are such an integral part of baseball history that mm-hmm. it's weird to exclude them. I mean, I, f- I feel the same way about Pete Rose, which is a separate but related category.
2: I mm-hmm. mean, I know you notice, know but the Hall of Fame hasn't excluded anybody. It's the baseball writers that have excluded them. And so the, if yes. the, if they were voted in, they'd be at the Hall of Fame, uh, just like anybody else. Uh, yeah, look, there's no question that, uh, it's, it'll be one of those great strange things for the Hall of Fame for eternity that the, you know, they still recognize his record. So Bonds has still has, unless they disavow his record of 762 home runs, he's still the home run champion. And so my view is maybe you want to strike that record too.
1: Mm-hmm. It's a little weird to have it's a little weird to have both those existing together. Eric, where does Big Pappy fall in the Bradlow tiers? I know he's not first tier.
4: No, no. Oh, he's deep into third tier. I can tell you that.
1: <laughs> he's barely inside the building. He's in the foyer. That's
4: why. I mean, that's why the idea that he would win on their first ballot is something that is somewhat con- constern- concerning to a to a statistician because. Listen, he's a great player. We all loved him. His quality in the in the in the postseason was was certainly most remarkable. But he had six years in Minnesota where he was below average or average at best. And his career his his career totals I mean, great five hundred thirty plus home runs. But he did he did he's he slightly is caught up in the in the steroid era as well. And and finally, he's a DH. I mean, definitely a third tier, and probably should have been made you know not made to, but should have, uh, you know, stuck it out a few years b- before getting elected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I I, I mean, I agree. I, I think his record
3: places him in the Hall of Fame. His record does not place him in the collection of other first ballot Hall of Famers. So I, I I agree. It is surprising to me that he made it on his first ballot. And I think that obviously there's all kinds of weird dynamics going on that led to that happening in addition to his his record. Um, and it's not obviously as egregious of a dynamic as I think again, Bonds or Clemens not being in the Hall of Fame at all. But it is, I, I agree. I mean, I I personally would not put them in the kind of first ballot or first top tier of Hall of Fame baseball players.
2: I think the other thing you have to do though is, you know, people do include, and rightly so, postseason performance. Yeah. And when you include postseason performance, He's clearly he's a Hall of Famer, even just regular season performance, but he certainly is one when you include postseason performance. And as, as Shane, Shane said, in a in a weird year that, you know, if, if you make this a normal year with two, one or two other strong players, I don't think he gets in on the first ballot. But that's the dynamics and the way it was. You know, I was also looking for next year. Um, I don't see anybody. go. There's definitely no one going into the Hall of Fame next year either. By the baseball writers, uh, there's no one. I don't think there's anyone close. I think Scott Rowland
3: was kind of is on an upward trajectory, right?
2: Right, but I don't see yes. him getting to seventy five percent. I think Beltre is not next year, but the year after next he could get in. Uh, oh, I think oh, Beltre. Yeah.
3: Oh, yeah. Beltre might be first ballot. Again, the, the, the no, 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 no. I agree,
2: but that's not but, next year. So yeah. all I was commenting on is that you know uh, it would have been not weird. But, you know, there are six Hall of Fame now, seven people going into the Hall of Fame, six from the Veterans Committee and one, uh, obviously, uh, David Ortiz. Yeah, I mean, I have no problem with him being in the Hall of Fame, except to the degree that, you know, I, I think there's a maybe a slightly false distinction between his innocence in the steroid era and all the other players in the steroid era. And so that's the problem I have, is that he was on the same list that implicated some other people as well. Well, I-, I mean...
1: Okay. Guys, yeah. that's it. let's let's let that one go. We'll spend a few weeks on okay. this. And um, and and I'm personally glad we're on the other side of it. <laughs> and uh, we've, uh, we've got baseball season around the corner. We'll talk about real baseball. We do. Here. We do a baseball
2: season around the corner. Just, their contract.
1: That's, true. that's true. We do have some labor disputes that might keep them out of the park for a little while. That's sad, because otherwise it's pretty much close to those famous. Those famous magical words that make yeah. your heart.
3: I, I, I think we might have to put a pin in pitchers and, reporting and catchers reporting for a, a few report. more weeks or months. Okay. we we'll Usually, it'll
1: happen. It'll happen eventually. We don't need 162 baseball games anyway. Let's shorten that season up a little while. We'll be good. Let's talk about the season, seasons that are going on. We got a few notes from the NHL. We got a few notes from the NBA. What can you do? Catch us up a little bit on these two. We're kind of mid-season with these two sports.
3: Well, kind of just to sort of take a little bit of a you know transition from baseball, I'm kind of fascinated by one team, the Edmonton Oilers, this year in hockey. A, they're kind of my historical rival, so I always kind of keep track of them, you know. But they uh, look to be they're only about 50% chance to make the playoffs right now. They're right on the margins of the playoffs. They probably won't make it if you if I had to predict. But they have the number two and number three. It's
1: not okay. Yeah, it's not okay. It's not okay for the, for a team with that kind of talent to miss the playoffs.
3: I, and I'm officially labeling them the Anaheim Angels. Right. Of hockey. Totally you know, fair. To have the totally two, se, se, at least by points, the second and third best players in the NHL and we need, not make we need, the playoffs. We
1: need to have rules where leagues can intervene and move players when they're with franchises that are yeah. so moribund that they waste some of the best talents in the game. I mean. I the, have been doing this for years, and it's yeah. criminal, and now we have the Oilers doing they it. should have moved Gretzky
3: off that team early, too, damn it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Well, I'm not sure about that, Shane, says the Calgary guy. Eric.
2: The only other thing I would notice about the NHL is, again, I, I say this every year, around this point in time. Florida and Colorado right now are targeting over 120 points, meaning if they get the average number of points for the rest of the season for 80 games, it's only happened 10 times ever in the history of the NHL and only five times in the last 30 years. So it appears, I mean, Shane can talk to this. Does there have the perception at least of extreme polarization this year? Because to have two teams, imagine two teams in a year ended up in the top 10 point totals of all time. That means someone's got to be losing a bunch of points.
3: Yeah, no. And I mean, I do think that there is a little bit of that, you know, kind of like there is the kind of extremes because there are a few teams that are like historically bad, too. Like, I think the Canadians are like, you know, tracking to be a very bad, you know, a couple records. I think I mean, I at least in the discussion I've sort of seen, I think this is mostly viewed. I don't think people are kind of reading any kind of long term trend like like, you know, I don't think baseball is becoming kind of more polarized, into haves and haves, nots or anything like that. It's probably a little bit idiosyncratic, but I agree. I, I mean, I think it's kind of cool to, to track, you know, these couple of teams. I mean, I think Colorado is an interesting one because I had them kind of pegged as, you know, sort of a Stanley cup favorite um, right from the get go And they actually kind of were a little bit underwhelming, at least in the first uh, month or two of the season. And they've really come on lately. And now they've got, you know, one of these, you know, kind of best records in hockey are now on somewhat of a historical track. So I at least do think that that that's certainly that there's signal there and them being a very, very good team that kind of supports my priors as well, whether or not they'll be able to kind of stay on a historical pace. Right. I'm, I'm that, raises, that.
1: that raises the forecasting question. How many teams will we have over 120 points at the end of the year? Eric, yes or no, we'll have a team over 120 at the end
2: of the year. I'm going to go with one.
1: You are going to go with one. Okay um
2: shane. just because they're targeting by the way about 124 right now so I'm, I'm building in there's two teams and i'm building in some mean reversion. A bit of
1: regression okay. and shane
2: will correct me I, they're obviously they're not in the same division so it's not like they play each other a yeah ton no, of in times. fact they're
3: in this uh, d- different conference even so they're really, okay. really going to be playing each other very much i'm going to say zero just because i think there's a certain uh, the, there's a lot of regression that happens in these things so i'm going to i guess go with the historical null
1: All right. Well, we're going to have to pick up the NBA in more detail in the next couple of weeks, especially once we roll off of football. We're going to be bereft of sports and sad, and we'll turn our lonely eyes to other sports, and we'll pick up a little bit more NBA. We're going to do some more NBA next quarter, actually. We've got one of the vice presidents from the league talking with us about the new technologies and the innovations they're pursuing there. We'll pick up a little basketball conversation after the break. Come back and join us after the break.
2: You're
0: listening to Wharton Moneyball
4: on Business Radio.
1: Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Coming to you via Zoom. Got the whole crew in here for the fourth and final segment of this week's show. The fourth quarter has become our interview segment in the time of COVID, and we're delighted This week, to welcome onto the show, Tom Ryan. Tom is the Vice President of Basketball Strategy at the NBA. Every now and then, we get to talk to somebody like Tom, but not often enough. We're delighted to have you, Tom. Thanks for making time
0: for us. Great to be here. Thanks, Kate.
1: Listen, Tom, you you caught our eye with an article in the USA Today three or four weeks ago now on this this kind of venture capital, Shark Tank-esque thing you guys did around technology and innovation uh, with, with issues that you feel are priorities for the NBA. So we want to hear about that. But first, let's understand who you are and what your role is at the NBA. A lot of folks might not know that there's a, there's a strategies are at the NBA. Um, and, you know, we're business schools. And so when we look at your background and we see that you were previously a management consultant, you've been investment management, you're kind of from our world in a way. So what is your background and how did you find yourself in the position you're in
0: now? Yeah, thanks, Kid. Um, so, so I've been um, been with the MBA for um, going on seven years now. Uh, as you mentioned, I, I started uh, started my career in, in investment management and the management consulting, um, and then kind of transitioned into the MBA in our corporate strategy group. So really focused for the first few years on uh, kind of internal consulting projects as well as corporate development, building out new verticals. Uh, so as part of the, the internal consulting work, was doing doing a lot of work on kind of basketball related strategy projects so what um, was helping out around uh, things with the season format different types of tent poles we would add into the the game over time like the playing tournament uh, so starting to do some of that work in our corporate strategy group um, and then about um, going on five years ago now uh, there was a new function that that, that got uh, built at the league office so basically taking some of those uh, corporate strategy principles, and just full-time focusing on the game. Uh, so, so, my uh, boss at Evan Wash was kind of tasked with leading that group. Um, it's called Basketball Strategy and Analytics. Um, and, and within that Basketball Strategy Strategy and Analytics function, there's there's a few different verticals. Um, so, there's a kind of data science vertical that is exactly what it sounds like, basically diagnosing the game and understanding um, everything from a data perspective. Uh, there's a lot of work being done around integrity. Um, around referees and officiating performance. And then there's the function I lead, which is um, all of our technology and innovation efforts. Uh, So the easiest way to think about that is just kind of the the R&D arm of the game. Uh, So anything that is forward-looking, strategic, um, it it could be the intersection of uh, technology and data in the game. Um, It could just be thinking about different kind of formats going forward.
1: So, Tom, this, just hearing you talk about all that's going on at the league office reminds me of how, and let me just be clear here, how well run the NBA is versus some of our other professional sports leagues. I mean, I'd like to send you over to MLB to talk about some of your stuff, but I'm afraid you, the version of you doesn't exist over there. Is anybody over there talking strategy and technology and innovation in Major League Baseball?
3: I mean, it seems like they're measuring the quality of umpires, but just doing not and completely ignoring it upon <laughs> measurement.
1: Tom, you don't have to speak if you don't want to, uh, <laughs> here to impugn the other sports, but it does strike uh, quite a contrast.
0: I appreciate you saying that about uh, how well run the league office is. We definitely have a lot of friends over at the MLB and you know they're also spending a lot of time and, and effort on the, the, the tech and innovation space.
1: Well, let's talk about what you guys are doing. Last June, you launched this. I'm oh, sorry. Odd, ah, go ahead. Jump in here. Well, I was going to say, all say is, our, is our most traditional baseball guy. He may not want any technology in baseball at all. No, no. Uh, yeah,
4: yeah, I don't want it. No, exactly. I want the. Uh, but one of the things that MLB did is it really pioneered the streaming. The MLB uh, TV was the first real sports streaming service, and they patented or sold that that division and made themselves billions. And that's uh, done really well for the league office. Okay.
1: Good, 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 good point on That's great. Okay. Okay, Tom, let's talk about Launchpad. You guys announced this thing last summer, and it's intended to be an annual thing. I'm sure you're going to revisit how it goes. But you said, well, we've got these three or four or five uh, priority areas. There's There's some ankle injury stuff. There's referee. We want to do some stuff for the youth development, and we're inviting all submissions. Anybody who wants to submit a technology or a project, but tell us what they're submitting for. When you when you choose, ultimately, you're going to choose five of these. You're going to whittle it down. You're going to do a Shark Tank thing. All sounds like a lot of fun. But what are they vying for? What's the endorsement you're providing or the funds or the advice or the guidance? Or what is it that you're providing those that you do choose? Yeah, um, it's
0: a great question. I think just starting starting off, just kind of zooming out a little bit and giving you guys some context on, the the origin here. So um, our kind of thesis with with NBA Launchpad is that uh, there's been a a significant amount of of investment in uh, sports technology broadly over the past five to 10 years. Um, And as it relates to basketball, uh, a lot of the time it's someone taking a product from another sport and just kind of transferring it over to basketball, right? It's not starting with kind of first principles of of things that are, are issues in basketball and then building to that. Um, and and that, that could also be taken some from another industry, right? You do something for the military or for healthcare, and then you just try to have a basketball salesperson. Uh, so so that was kind of an issue that we've seen over time. Um, and in addition to that, um, we are are have been piloting technologies and, and are very kind of forward thinking with how we work with startups. That that's been something that um, our our executive team has been kind of championed for a long time. Uh, so where we saw the opportunity is. Kind of rather than playing a passive stakeholder in this space, to really flip it on its head a little bit and almost have like a a DARPA type of model where where we're starting with data and we're starting with our core issues, right? So the the, the ankle um, innovation trap. Let, let me
1: stop you, Tom. Not everyone's familiar with DARPA. So what do you mean by a DARPA type model?
0: Yeah, yeah. So it's a good question. So so DARPA is a branch of the military that is essentially their their venture capital arm, and what they do is they they put out like kind of a, a point of view or a thesis for a an issue or a category that, that they want to advance. Um, and they basically have a, a kind of a, an RFP. It's an open RFP that anyone can respond to. It can be uh, academic groups. It can be startups. It can be large companies. And, and they're really kind of agnostic to who's applying. Um, and then what they do is they kind of fund the best ideas and give them the, the infrastructure to, to build. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of what we wanted to do. We, we saw this gap. We saw two issues. The one is – just playing this passive stakeholder not having the exact things built that we want. Um, and then two, there's just, it's kind of hard, it, it's a hard bridge uh, between a very early stage company and working with like a big organization like the NBA, right? There's sometimes the economics don't make sense. The economics can be inverted, but we're asking them to pay us instead of vice versa. Uh, so what we wanted to do is just kind of build a muscle uh, at the league level where we have kind of standard terms for this is how this R&D project is going to work. And, and essentially what the, the idea is, is we have a, a really well-defined structure for how we source, how we select the companies and then how we evaluate them during this R&D period. And then at the end of that period, we decide, do we want to do something larger with this company and, and have them be like a, a, a really core strategic partner? Um, or is it is it maybe something that could be interesting to a couple teams? Maybe maybe there's not something there for the league um, or is this just something that after, all this r&d work we realize that maybe it's not a great fit and and they go focus on other priority areas Uh, so that's really the muscle that we're trying to build up is like doing that kind of more frequently in in a focused way um, and then the ability to, to kind of double down on things that we think could have a huge impact
1: that's so cool it's so cool because you're you're not you didn't make the final like investment double down decision at the point of the shark tank selection you're saying no you're 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 under consideration now we're going to we're going to hang out with you for a while we're going to really get to know you for a while and then after six months we'll figure out whether to go forward from a decision making perspective especially given that how nascent these technologies are and how much uncertainty there is that's just fantastic so okay now we understand better that's great let's talk a little bit about what you saw this was your first time out how did your had the submissions the range the quality the organizations that did it how did that compare to what you expected Cause I, the, the quote in the article was like hundreds of submissions from many countries. So how did that compare to what you thought? you
0: Yeah. So, so I think the, the response from the market was, was excellent. Um, as you said, there, there are hundreds of submissions, uh, 60% from the U S 40% from uh, other parts of the world, which was just a great kind of data point. Um, we were being realistic with ourselves where we're, this wasn't like uh, some other types of incubators or accelerate accelerators where it was like very wide open, right? It wasn't just like come work with the MBA, then we would have expected thousands of, of applications. It was right. really focused, right? Like we had an officiating training and development one, like there aren't hundreds of companies out there working in that space, uh, yep. but that was okay with us. We wanted to communicate to the market that this is an important priority area for us. So yep. even if we don't get, Uh, all the submissions this year, people are on on notice. And if you're thinking about starting a training company, then you might think of that like in the next 12 to 18 months, right? Uh, So so that was was by design that that we were kind of constraining um, the the submissions a little bit. Uh, But we also wanted to have a couple that that were more kind of open-ended, right? The the elite youth player performance one. Uh, Like we have uh, developmental academies for elite kind of 13 through 19-year-olds, both domestically and internationally. And, and that one was very open, right? It was just, uh, we want to find technologies that can help us uh, develop elite basketball players in a better way. And, and and that could be anything, right? That could be technically with skill development. That could be physically, um, could be mentally, right? So, so that one was really kind of a catch-all, uh, but it was focused on training. Uh, and yeah, so, so I would say overall quality and, and quantity of submissions was was excellent. Uh, the hard part was really the prioritization on the back end, right? Uh, just to play out that example on elite player performance, like when we got to the finalist stage, certain companies were better than others. It was just a matter of us deciding is quantifying shooting biomechanics more important than making sure that people are healthy and staying on the court, right? Yeah, there's, nice. there, there's different issues, and um, that that was a great kind of conversation and debate on our end. Is how do we want to prioritize our resources for? Right.
1: So a couple of things jump out to me. One, it's from an organizational decision making, the process you use, let's not pursue it now, but that is something that we'd be interested to hear. Like, how did y'all decide? How did you evaluate them? How did you decide? Because it's not that different from your 30 franchises deciding who to draft, you know, so some of those kinds of dynamics probably played out. But you also said this thing that I think deserves a little elaboration because I didn't know it. You've got a you've got a development league for our development program for thirteen year olds. Whenever that sounds like that sounds soccer esque to me, and I would have known that the NBA did that.
0: Yeah, um, it's definitely worth talking about a little bit. So, so we uh, going on I believe it's five years ago now. We uh, five or six years we we launched NBA uh, academies. Uh, so there in we have five academies around the world right now, and in, uh, in Latin America and Africa. Um, in Asia. And then our global academy um, is in, is in Australia. Uh, so we, it, it tends to index a little bit like closer to uh, 16 through 19. Um, but in certain countries that, that come in a little earlier um, and, and essentially what that is, is going as you said, it, it's our version of a soccer model uh, because we have a draft. It doesn't make sense for our clubs to all, have their own academy systems right all over the world. Uh, but it does make sense for the NBA, for basketball and business reasons to to, to try to develop talent in priority markets for us, right? So you, you think about India, um, China, Philippines, Indonesia, right? Like, like all those big Asian countries, as well as the whole continent of Africa. Just, just being able to create uh, different pathways and, and give them access to resources that might be really hard if it, if you're trying to be an NBA player or Or a high-level professional player. Is it it as
1: is it as straightforward as from a business perspective, an NBA's business perspective? One Yao Ming is so meaningful economically to the league, it would justify decades of development camps in China. And so you've got you you guys have become quite an international game in the last twenty years. And if you can surface a few more of those international stars, it broadens your appeal. And that is really important to your value proposition. Is that is that imp- part of the story?
0: Yeah, no, no, I think that's a great way to put it. Um, yeah, it's kind of the the same way a venture fund would, would run, right? You're spreading a lot of small bets, and and you're hoping that one of them kind of okay. returns the fund, right? Okay. Uh, so, so it's the same idea. Um, and and we realize it's going to take time, but but we are starting to have kind of early success. I'm sure everyone knows. Josh Giddy on on the OKC Thunder, he, he was a lottery pick that kind of came through our system. Uh, so we're starting to have early success, but I think it's going to be one that's going to, going to take time to yield that, to that type of prospect.
1: Well, it's a lot of fun. And now you've got um, technology that you're hoping to develop into something that contributes to these camps. Um, let's talk about the first one. So you guys go through uh, what, what the article anyway referred to as kind of a shark tank process. You choose five companies from the 20 finalists. And they're spread across these different priority areas. One of the areas is this youth development and it, but, but it sounds like the technology has more broader use in that. And I want to start with that because it's something that we talk about in other sports and it feels like it's finally making its way over to basketball. I'd love to hear more. So the company I'm talking about is Uplift and it's using biomechanics and 3D technology to improve shot mechanics and. The reason this catches our eye is because we talked of technology you know across all sports for years now, and we've seen what's happened with player development in baseball. And slowly we're seeing some of that same technology move into sports like football with quarterback training. It's been around forever in golf. But basketball we haven't heard so much, but shot shot, something about shot mechanics seems right. For this. So how common is this in the league now? How new is this idea? What do you hope happens with uplift?
0: That's a great way to tee it up. I, I think um, starting with kind of how common it is in the league right now, I would say it's something that is uh, like a, a very, very critical high priority for our NBA teams, G League and W teams. They, they have shooting coaches on staff. They're constantly looking at video um they're 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 working with them in a gym setting, in a game setting, and, and just breaking everything down. I would say where the gap has been is that it's it's really hard to quantify those things. So um if you break down every component of a jump shot, which I'm not gonna pretend to be a shooting coach, but you can imagine uh, things around your elbow, around your wrist, around ball through, around your your hips and knees, there's just a lot of kind of um components that go into a jump shot. Um and, and those haven't been able to be quantified. And, and now with advances in computer vision, especially on on a mobile device, uh, you're just able to do that in, in a way that's a lot more uh, kind of scalable. So um, th- that's something that that we're really excited about. Uplift can do. So so starting with being able to to really break down with our experts, right? So, so starting with NBA shooting coaches, with um, with with professional athletes, and and former athletes who are going to be on our advisory board to really say like if I were just writing down a piece of paper, here are the 15 things that are important in a shot. Then being able to map that to a skeletal model that that, that you can see uh, through a phone or an iPad or camera, and then being able to say like, okay, now we're able to start uh, putting constraints on on each part of that shot to say like it needs to be within a certain range Mm -hmm. to to, uh, whatever, to, to, to achieve success. And and then we'd obviously want to measure those against outcomes as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's, that's kind of the, the ambitious project that, that we're, um, just starting to undertake is um, yeah being able to to first define what a perfect and I don't want to say perfect jump track because there's a lot of different types to get to the same outcome but but at least have the uh, at least starting with the definitions.
1: Eric's trying to jump in here he's probably going to volunteer his, gar- his garage his driveway bucket for trying out this technology. Eric?
2: I, I would I would love to I I Never saw a shot I didn't like, but actually my, my, <laughs> yeah. question, my question more has to do with how should we think about the NBA? Since we're a business school also, and this is Wharton Moneyball, should we think of the NBA as a wholly owned subsidiary, like you, the parent company, develop some technology and the teams will use it, or is it more cafeteria style? Um, you may invest in something and each team can decide whether it's beneficial to itself. How, how should we think about it just from a, a user technology, from a user perspective?
0: Great question, Eric. I, I think it's it depends on on the topic. Um, I would say it's more the latter that, that that what the league is trying to do is serve as as both like a an innovator, uh, but also a gatekeeper, right? And, and being able to, to to kind of validate technologies um, or products, and then after they pass a certain threshold, then teams can opt in and buy them themselves. And some of those categories are are viewed as competitive, so they might not want to tell us, right? Uh, but, but then other categories are truly uh, just kind of a rising tide situation where if it's something that's health related, for instance, like it might make sense for it to be a league level initiative. Um, so it kind of depends on the on the topic. But I would say as it relates to uh, the five companies in Launchpad, it would be a lot more um, the latter where we would just validate these companies are are legit. They pass certain threshold. We've done all the research and then companies can opt in as they, they choose.
1: A related question is it sounds like the team that whittled down the initial submissions to the 20 finalists and then the shark tank, you know, judges at the end included some league folks, but also maybe some team representatives. Is that fair to say? Were there team representatives in this process already?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, That was something that was important to us is to, although we do have kind of applied practitioners with our academies and our G League Ignite program, we also wanted to bring in experts like athletic trainers, team doctors, et cetera, that, that are, are on the ground dealing with this, these issues day in and day out. Um, so that was an important part of our evaluation process.
1: Well, let's talk about one that's close to those trainers and docs. The, one of the five companies you guys selected for the six-month project is called Better Guards. And on their website, they, they, they're, they're, it's a, they call it Adaptive Joint Protection. This fits the priority, the ankle injury priority, That you guys named. So this is quite specific, isn't it? When you say, well, the whole world can't apply because the whole world's not working on preventing ankle injuries. But you guys quote the number of players that the high percentage of players who end up with ankle injuries. What did you see with these guys? How advanced is this technology? How much promise do you think there is? How much can be done about preventing ankle injuries? Um, People have been working on shoes for a long time. What's what's new here? Yes. So so
0: this is one, as you mentioned, um, ankle injuries are Kind of uh, an unfortunate t- just reality in our game. Over 25% of the league uh, suffer from an ankle injury every year, and, and it also contributes to the most games lost due to an injury. Um, so, so it's just a real issue. And, and compared to some of the other um, injury types, like ACLs, like other types of soft tissue injuries, there's a lot of investment going into those in healthcare and other sports ankle injuries are a little bit more specific to basketball, volleyball. Interesting. Uh, right. so, so that was one where we just wanted to shine a light on that and say, like, we want some innovation in this space, uh, both on the prevention side and, and the return to play side. Uh, so we um, kind of had that open call and truly got a, a lot of different types of responses, um, some on the prevention side, some on the kind of ongoing monitoring side, um, and then some that were truly about getting you back on the court after injury Mm -hmm. and um, and where that same topic that i brought up earlier like there wasn't necessarily a a better product or um, issue to go after i think for us in year one we just wanted to to spend our resources on prevention and we thought this was the most interesting technology in prevention given the kind of interesting ip they've developed that it is supposed to have that the the same attributes as ligaments in your ankle but it just reacts faster Um, so so that's something that we are intrigued by. Um, we think the team that's built it um, really, really sharp group. Uh, but I think for us, this is one that is like a perfect uh, candidate for Launchpad because there's a lot of promise there. If it works, it can have a huge impact, not just on the elite uh, kind of leagues, but also every high school player, every youth player could start wearing this in their shoe in their ankle brace. Uh, but what is critical is to do the work on the, the safety and biomechanics side to say like, One, actually putting this piece of hardware on isn't going to increase the likelihood of getting injured for any reason. We don't expect it to. And two, um, the biomechanics side of it is actually doing the the kind of deep biomechanics kind of research in a lab to understand uh, different movements, right? I'm not going to pretend to be a a biomechanist, but uh, there's a lot of different ways that you can test this against motion capture to to say it's doing what it says it's doing. Okay. so that would be kind of the, the first phase of, of the project, and then phase two would be some actual research where, where we put this on X hundred or thousand players, and we're kind of monitoring incidence rates and seeing if it works. Um, so, yeah, th- this one's fascinating, and um, we're all cautiously optimistic that it, that it could have a big impact. Cool.
3: With, with that kind of transitioning sort of phase one, which sounds like it'd be like kind of more like actually laboratory kind of experimentation to kind of more actual experimentation and practice with real life basketball players. Do, do you kind of view like are, are the G leagues and some of these other kind of things, do you kind of view those as substrates where you can do a little bit more experimentation? Do you kind of envision that you'd be rolling this out in things like the G leagues before it kind of hits the prime time of the NBA?
0: Yeah, it's a great question, Shane. So, so, so we typically do view the G League as an R&D lab for, for rules, for a lot of experimental things that we're doing, um, for kind of player safety and health-related things. It's, it's a little different, right? Like, like I don't think we'd want to put anything on players that would – until we know it's, it's actually providing some type of health benefit. Uh, or at so least no side little... effects,
3: so to speak, yeah. Yeah,
0: exactly. So, so there might be other ways to structure that kind of phase two of research. Um kind of working with an academic group or or potentially like our academies or uh, someone else where we do have a more controlled population that that we can monitor over time.
1: Tom, speaking of experimenting and innovation, stepping a little more more outside of the Launchpad competition, you did choose this company, Rezzl, R-E-Z-Z-I-L, Rezzl, using VR technology for referee training, which is interesting, but I know you guys are working on referee Issues more broadly in the game. Can you talk a little bit about where the NBA stands right now on technology and improving referee? This is a, again something that's relevant across sports. We heard just in the last week or two that baseball is going to automated umpires in Triple A, and it just feels like one of these inevitably growing things. Where are you guys with referee and technology in the NBA? Yeah, so so we've been.
0: Um, over over the last five or 10 years, really, we've been investing a, a lot of time, energy, resources into efficient um, technology, kind of starting with our replay center, right? So just being able to build out a best-in-class um, kind of center to pull in all the, the video feeds, to be able to communicate with the reps on the court in real time. Um, so that was kind of phase one, is just like being able to, to have that central hub. Um, I would say phase two is being able to take a lot of the Um, technology advances that we're seeing in computer vision and sensors and and being able to kind of bring those to the court. Um, So so rather than playing a a kind of passive role in in officiating, like the replay center is uh, actually building something that's more hands-on and automated. Uh, So so what have we been doing to get there? So um, we, over the past couple of years, um, have been really focused, similar to other leagues, on uh, being able to use computer vision for automating certain call types. Um, the way we kind of think about it is in kind of three phases, I would say. Um, so phase one is just being able to have like teach a computer uh, the rules and being able to see if it can uh, detect a certain could be a goal ten, it could be out of bounds, and then basically just being able to have that like plug into our replay center. So it's just just another tool in their toolkit. You can Tom, Tom, real
1: quickly, let me, let me just clarify. Computer vision is just this technology that that takes a video feed and codes it up in some way that then can be analyzed. And so from a straight video feed, you can start determining any number of things. You don't have to have tracking devices on the players, for example. You can You can train the technology to interpret it directly from a video feed. So that's what broadly you mean by computer vision. And you're saying we're trying to build up some kind of automated tools to provide the referees in real time. And you, you're not saying necessarily that they're going to buzz and the answer will be given by the computer vision, but they'll at least have that tool with them. It's kind of, I might call it in another setting, algorithmic guidance, and they can decide whether to use it or override it, but it's there. Is that Am I thinking about that right?
0: Yeah, you are. I, um, I think there's a couple, uh, couple things to dig into there. I think there's kind of part one is just proving out can we get the technology to work? Yes. yes. Is it accurate? Is it reliable? Um, and, and, and how much can it do? Can it just get the um, gold pens right? Because that's a, generally speaking, kind of easier thing to, to solve right. for, or right. can it do these incredibly hard things where it is a an out-of-balance play, where there's 20, 30 types of out-of-balance, there's yeah. very high frame rate, high resolution camera angles you need, right? Can it process all that in real time? A contact you, between players seems
3: like a very difficult vision right. task. Right.
0: Exactly. Uh, so, so that's and, and if you talk to a, a like computer vision engineer, they would say any of it's possible. It's just a matter mm-hmm. of how many cameras, ha, how many servers, all those things, and, and how fast you need it. Uh, okay. So, so that's kind of the the, the phase in right now. But I would the only thing I would kind of uh, add to what you said is there could be certain call types where it, it's not just a an aid it's actually making the call, right? right? So I think you can envision- like,
1: That's where you go eventually, right?
0: Yeah, and, and there could be some where we actually start there pretty soon, where we just say, okay. you can envision a world where a golden happens and a red light just goes off. Yeah, uh, right. So there could be some rules like that, but the more nuanced ones, uh, okay. we definitely want that to just be a tool. Uh, okay. But yeah, so, so that's generally speaking that the work we've been doing on officiating automation, and we think, um, especially with some of the rule changes we've had over the past year, that uh, you're not able to review out of balance calls in the last two minutes. We, we really wanted to continue over-investing in this space to be able to uh, help help get those calls accurate and be able to show that to fans um, both in Arena and at home quickly. Uh, so that's on the automation side and then we'll connect that all back into to Rezl. Uh So the company that we selected for Launchpad, basically we've done a lot of work in, in VR over the past three to five years and it's it's been um, on the officiating side, it's been around capturing actual live video with kind of VR capture cameras. Um, and the issue with that is that it just gives you a certain point of view, right? You're, you're able to see it from court side. If we put it above the rim, you're able to see it from above the rim. And what it didn't do is it didn't give you that immersive view where you could yep. kind of zoom all over the court and see things from different angles. Uh, but given the, the, the work that we're doing now, we're, we're going to start having skeletal tracking data similar to other uh, sports that you've seen. Where you're going to be able to see full limbs and, and be actually be able to actually go into certain plays and say if I was standing two feet to the left, this would have been a viewing angle that I could have seen. Okay. Uh, so I think our, our our referee operations group is really excited to just be able to go back through and kind of replay 20 plays from the past week and say like, here's where you're out of position. Now come over here. This is what you would have seen. Uh, oh, so that's crazy! Really- you
1: could actually they based on the computer uh, video feed from a game, they could put a referee in the situation that the guy was in when he made a call, and they could move him to a different position and see how he could have – wow, that's really cool. That's really neat. Because apparently where a referee positions himself or herself is an important part of being a good referee.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's one of those things where the average fan would never realize kind of how much goes into the mechanics of refereeing, but but it is kind of critical, especially for a younger refs just coming up and getting that getting that wisdom from – um, our, our kind, of, kind of referee advisors that are coaching them day in and day
1: out. Okay, awesome. Well, listen, Tom, we're going to have to let you go. I feel like we could do this conversation for a little while. Fun stuff. Sounds like a really fun job and um, a good moment in that job. This Launchpad venture adds uh, some, some flavor. We'll be very curious to hear what comes of this first round and then what you guys do with the next round come next summer. Thank you very much for making the time for us.
0: Thanks for having me, Kate. Appreciate it.
1: You bet. That was Tom Ryan, VP of basketball strategy for the NBA. He helped run the launch pad process that they started last June and then announced just this month or last month now on the five new companies, the five technologies that they're going to partner with for the next six months and see if they want to um, invest more intensely. All right, guys, that has been two hours of sports analytics. Another Wharton Moneyball here on SiriusXM for the whole team: Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradley. This is Cade Massey. Thank you to Matty Dats, the boss man, for keeping us on the straight and narrow. Thank you for Dion Simpkins. Dion, appreciate the work you're doing. Couldn't do it without you, as you know better than anybody. And thank you guys for listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.